Thanks, Danielle, for bringing us that reading. So we've been, uh, we've been doing a series looking at the life of King David, and we're going to continue in that today uh, by looking at the psalm that was just read for you. So if you've got that handy, if you can leave it open, uh, that'd be great. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would help us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word preserved for us. We pray now we'd be able to concentrate and find in it life and hope. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, I think there's a... Um, uh, Australia has a, a national religion. I don't know if you know this, but I think, I think it does. And uh, there's a high priest of our national religion. And, um, and, and there, he, there he is. Um, I think house building, renovation, all that sort of stuff, this is kind of our, it's our thing. It's the thing that we love. And um, my wife, who is not here but will appreciate this at a later service, uh, has put me on to um, this mob. Does anyone know who these guys are? Some of you do, none of you. Oh, it's great. You knew the first guy anyway, so we're half right. Um, this is um, Chip and Joanna. They do a thing called Fixer Upper in America. It's the same sort of idea. What, why do we like these shows so much? I mean, the, the block works on the fact that it looks like a complete dump at the start, and at the end it doesn't. And hopefully someone makes some money out of it. And it's the same with the Fixer Upper show that uh, is in America. They find something that's broken down, and they restore it. I think we like the idea of restoration, taking that which is a dump and turning it into something of value. And to be honest, guys, that's the heart of what's going on in the reading that we just had. It came from a book called Psalms. And uh, it's worth saying that this Bible that we have is not just one book, but it's actually a library of books. Uh, Somebody here will be able to tell me how many books are in the Bible. There we go, 66. Somebody went to Sunday school some time ago, which is great. Uh, You can ask the kids today when they come out. They probably won't know, but they'll know lots of other things. But it's great. So there's 66 books in this book. And if you go right to the middle of it, you'll find this book called Psalms. Yes, the P is silent, Psalms. And uh, it's a book that, at its heart, is actually designed to be full of songs. It's the songbook of the nation of Israel the songbook of the nation of Israel. There are 150 songs in there. Half of them are written by David. And all of them, as distinct and different as they are, all of them are prayers. They're sung prayers, but they're prayers to God. They're prayers that express the heart of the nation. And you'll find in that celebration. You'll find in that doubt. You'll find in that anger towards God. And you'll find in it thanksgiving towards God but it's full of prayers. There are some people, though, who have no need for prayer. There are some people in the world who have no need for prayer. The first group of people that have no need for prayer are atheists. They have no need for a God at all. And my only problem with atheists having no need for a God is I don't know why they talk about God so much. They really are on about not having a God a lot. I kind of figure if you don't have a God, you'd just get on with it but they like to tell other people that they're silly for having a God. So atheists, they got no need for a God, and therefore there's no one to pray to. No one to pray to. There's a second mob, which aren't anywhere near as aggressive on Twitter. Uh, They're they're a bunch of the apathetic. And uh, I've said here they're also known as the self-righteous, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But these people have no need of a God either. 
The apathetic, uh, I, I think this is kind of the, if, if Australia's major religion is, is renovation, uh, DIY, uh, then this is our religious stance. It's apathetic. I'm a good person. At least I'm not as bad as that bloke. Do, do you know this feeling? I'm not bad. And I can see lots of other people in the world around me who are worse than me, so I must be okay, yeah? And if you're better than the worst people, then you're good because you're not as bad as them. And so we have no need for a God when we're feeling apathetic towards God. I'm all right. I'm pretty self-righteous. Jesus has some interesting things to say to the self-righteous. I absolutely love this thing that he says. Self-righteous kind of uh, manifests itself back in Jesus' day, uh, 2,000 years ago, by people who were very religious. And Jesus had some wonderful things to say to the people who were very religious. I think you'll enjoy this. This is from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, you guys don't know, but if you were in Bible times, we would go, Pharisee, and we go, they're the good guys. They're the guys working really hard to be religious. Good guys. And when it says a tax collector here, you would all boo. Now, look, I think we don't like the ATO today as well. Is that right? Uh, think of them as a parking inspector if you need to, okay? All right, so we know how... So when, when it says a tax collector, we should all smile. And when it comes to... Uh, sorry, the Pharisee. And when it comes to the tax collector, we want to go boo. So nice, well done. Well, you're participating well. The Pharisee stood up by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, verse 14 is where Jesus puts the punchline. I tell you, says Jesus, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you see this? There's a great reversal coming. The people who think that they're better than others have nothing to gain from God, and they'll be humbled. The people who realize that they have nothing will be lifted up. That's the great reversal that's coming. God loves the humble heart. He absolutely loves it. And that cry, have mercy on me, is at the heart of Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51, if you've got it there, I'd love to have you open it up with me. It's written by a guy called David. And last week, we looked at David's life. David was a king in Israel a thousand years ago. And you would think that the head of God's country would be a good guy. And he was in many ways. But last week, we saw that King David coveted, that he stole, that he committed adultery, that he lied, and that he committed murder. He did all five of the last five of the Ten Commandments. He's in no way left feeling or looking righteous in our sight. And he's the king of the country. So what does he do? Well, following on from that incident, he actually writes a song. It might not be your way that you deal with it. But he writes a song. And he writes a song about sin. Now, last week I said that sin has consequences and they're chaotic. 
So when we line all the dominoes up in a row, we press one and we know that they'll just fall in a straight line. But if you've put them all higgledy-piggledy and you knock one over, you do not know where the next one will go down. That's sin. Sin has chaotic consequences. It has chaotic consequences in David's personal life and in his family life. Everything around him is impacted by his personal sin. And we're going to see what he had to say in this song he wrote in Psalm 51. Now, some people here might have liked English at school. Did anyone like English at school? I literally see one hand. That's great. This is going to work out perfectly. Did anyone, we'll try the other way. Did anyone not like English at school? Great team. Okay, great. Well, this is going to totally be terrible for you, so just ignore it. I quite liked English, so I'm, I'm a bit weird. That's okay. Um, I, I want you to have a look. When, when you write a song or when you write a poem, often you organise it helpfully, right? You organise it intentionally. And I want to show you in the first nine verses of this song, there's actually a whole lot of intentionality and organisation. There are pairs that go together in the first nine verses. And when you put them together, they go in like this until you get to this one, which is the key to the first nine verses. And I want to look at these pairs and see what they teach us. And I want us to look at the heart of the psalm. So we're going to look at these pairs together. Well, when you make a mess, you want to clean it up. When you've got a blot, you want to blot it out. And that's exactly how David starts. Have a look with me at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. What's David want? I've got a stain on my heart and I want it removed. But I want you to see there's an assumption here that must be in place for you to ask this of God. Do you notice those those words there? It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. See, the only reason you can come to God and ask that is because you think something about his character. Imagine this for a moment. What if God wasn't merciful? What if God wasn't interested in your silly, broken life? So you go, Oh God, have mercy on me. And he goes, Whatever. Whatever. Now, the fact that we think that that's unusual shows how much we depend on the character of God. Do you see? We trust that God loves us, that he's merciful, that he'll listen to our prayers. That's the only reason you can make this request. And we see it in the one that matches it at the end of this this section, in verses 8 and 9. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. David is saying, I know your character and your character gives me, cons- give me confidence to ask this of you. Because of the character of who you are, God, I can ask that you would cleanse me. Now, does anyone's car look like this at the moment? Stay in Oran Park long enough, I'm sure that's going to happen. Once the wind gets up, your car is going to look like that. Wash me. And that's the passion of this first section. David wants to be washed. But when it comes to sin, how will we wash ourselves? There'll be a variety of different answers. You might be told, hey, you can wash your sin away by doing penance. Say enough prayers. Do enough things on the, and you'll you'll get them removed. Or maybe it's being placid. I'm going to go and meditate somewhere until the me sense goes away. Oh, that'll be good. I'll get rid of my sin that way. 
Or maybe we'll think, oh, look, I know what I'll do. I'll make a sacrifice to God. I'll do something costly for God, and then he'll have to rub out my sin. We'll placate God. Or how about this one? I'll go and purchase something because a little bit of retail therapy will make me feel better. That's supposed to be a little bit humorous, but you're supposed to recognize it, yeah? Do you, do, so we're feeling bad. What do we do? Click, 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 click. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not feeling so bad now. Anyone? No one. Okay, good. I reckon, I reckon you do it because I might do it. Retail therapy will we'll make us feel better. We'll get rid of our sins that way. I want you to see how different that is to what David says here. Have a look at verse 2 with me. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And it's part in the verse in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. What's the difference? All the world's religions will tell you to do something. They'll all tell you to do something. I want you to see how passive this is. How much is David doing here? God, wash me. God, cleanse me. Do you see, he's not doing it. It's done to him passively. He's saying, God, you will need to save me. I can't do this on my own. Christianity is different from every other religion in the world because it says you can't do it yourself. It can be done by God. Not DIY, but done by God. You can't cleanse yourself from sin, but God can. God can. Now, does anyone know what uh, this thing is here? Sorry? Gun sight, yes, absolutely. Head-up display in a fighter, modern fighter plane. Now, what the head-up display is telling you is your attitude, your speed, your direction, where the horizon is. It's telling you helpful things, and because it's in front of you, it's always in front of you. When you fly the plane, you've always got this helpful information in front of you. David has the opposite problem. He says because of his sin, he has something always before him, and it's not helpful, and it burdens him. Have a listen to what it says in verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. David says, I have something always on my mind. It's my sin. It weighs me down. And he says this stunning thing in verse 5. It's not a new problem for him. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. This sickness, this sin sickness is a burden and it's in front of us all the time. When you sin, you know it. I can't tell from the outside. But you see it. The sin is always before us. So what is sin? Well, sin's arena is the heart. It starts in our heart. And it is a general disposition. What that means is, if I tell you this, I tell you what, we'll make a little bargain. Why don't you choose this week not to sin for a week? Who's with me? It's a great idea, isn't it? Who reckons they're going to get there at the end? Put your hand up. You'll come back to church next week and you'll never have sinned. You're a bunch of failures. Go and get a new church, I reckon. That's terrible. Why won't we get there? Sorry? Or a new pastor. Yes, thank you. Well done. Well, well played. No, I'm going to fail too. I'm going to fail. Why? Because it's my general disposition. I will choose badly at some point this week and it'll probably be before afternoon tea this afternoon. Me, and I'm your pastor. So sin's our general disposition. It's also a genetic disease. Uh, you know, you've heard of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned, and they gave to their children a disposition to choose sin and not God. 
Because here's the thing, you never have to teach your kids to lie, do you? If anyone taught their kids to lie, come and talk to me afterwards and I'll hear your confession because that's not good, okay? But, but here's the thing, we don't have to teach our kids to lie. Why is that? They just do it, right? They have a general disposition. They've picked up this genetic disease from Adam and Eve and guess what? It's a fatal disease. You'll all die. It's a genetic disease passed down from one to the other and it's God's declaration that the stuff we do is called sin. It's not right. It's not right. Right. So that's what sin is. And then we get to this key verse right in the middle. It says in verse 4 and 5, this is the one that we were building up to, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. See, David says the key idea is I've sinned against God and I've sinned against him only. And we think, well, but that doesn't sound right, does it? If we were here last week, and some of you weren't, so apologies, but last week we saw it's not just that David sinned against one person, God. He sinned against some other people as well. What about Bathsheba? He committed adultery with her. What about Uriah? He arranged for him to be murdered. What about their son who died because of his sin? What about the soldiers that were killed with Uriah? What about his sons and daughters who saw the dad sin grievously and it ruins their idea? of what fatherhood should be like? What about the nation who had a king that let them down? And yet David says, against you, God, you only have I sinned. And we go, huh? I can think of a whole bunch of people he sinned against. So what does he mean? Well, what he means is, uh, has anyone had the experience of being lost? Anyone? Experience of being lost? Great, good. Some of you have never been lost. That's interesting. Um, Have you ever been lost or temporarily geographically embarrassed, as I like to call it? Have you ever been lost with your partner, with your significant other. What happens in that case? Just harmony breaks out in the car, doesn't it? Is that what happens? Harmony breaks out. Oh, beloved, you're right. This is the way that we should be going. That turn-off was not the one that we needed. You're right. Is that what happens? It's not what happens, isn't it? Maybe some of you experienced that this morning getting here. It's not what happens. We say it's this way and someone else says it's that way. How do we ever settle this these days? Google Maps, exactly. What we need, what we need is an objective outside thing that says this is where you actually are and this is where to go. We need to go outside ourselves to find a true north. And so that's exactly what God does. God is the one who is our true north, who tells us what is right and what isn't who points us in the way to the productive and joyful life. And when we deviate, he calls that deviation not just an error, but sin. And so without God, there would not be sin. There would just be arguing in the car. But with God, there is a true north, and so there is sin. And so David says, the ultimate sin I've committed is that I've sinned against you, God, and you only. God is the true judge who will point us towards true north, and hold us accountable. Well, the next bit we see in verses 7, 8, and 9 is a desire for God, sorry, 10, 11, and 12, is a desire for God to do something. So David starts talking to God. Now, I love snowflakes. They are pure in every possible way. There's nothing in them. There's just water arranged beautifully. Fantastic. They are pure, the picture of purity. Have a look at verse 10. Created me a pure heart, O God, And renew a steadfast spirit within me. What does David want? God, 
make a new creation in me. The God who spoke the world into being now will speak cleansing into my heart so that we will be white as snow. And he will give us a new spirit. He asks, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Make me solid, God. Make me rock solid. Make me clean and make me solid. And then he says something about presence. And presence is that bit where I can sit next to my best friend and we don't have to talk because we just are together. Do you know this experience? And David says, God, you're that to me. And I don't ever want to lose it. Have a listen to what he says in verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David says, God, keep me close. There was a steadfast spirit in the previous one. And now he talks about the personal presence of God. And he says, keep your Holy Spirit in my heart. Keep your Holy Spirit in my heart. And then we go for this fixer-upper, this restoration idea in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He says, God, salvation brings me joy. Bring it back again. Give me that joy again and give me a willing or a noble spirit. Make me someone of honour again because you'll make, me, you'll make me new. You'll restore me. And then he says, well, something will happen. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Basically, he says, I'm going to teach people. If you save me, I'm going to tell them how that happened. And I want to see them turn back to you because it's the best way to live. It's the best way to live. He goes on and he says, deliver me. You see, this is where we see that David knew of his sin. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. See, if you're forgiven, if your if you're prison sentence is cancelled, you won't go, oh, well, no biggie. I'm just off to do something else. You rejoice. And so he says, I will sing of your righteousness and declare your praise. Being saved leads to singing. So we'll do some of that a little bit later. And then we see, for the nation, may it please you to prosper Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Basically, David's saying, if you prosper the city, it'll lead to proper sacrifice again in the city. That'll be awesome. But it begs the question, doesn't it? What needed to change? Why did it need to be made acceptable again? There's a picture of um, Jesus, well, supposedly Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem. And I don't know, has anyone been there? Wow. Uh, Is it quiet, Tash? Busy? Crazy? Trampling. It's supposed to be a holy place and it turned into a trampling place. Have have a listen. This is what God got upset about with the way Israel was doing their religion. He says, Who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to uh, to me. Basically, he says, You guys are doing religion, but it's just trampling my courts. No real thing is happening here. You're just walking in and out of the building. Now, guys, that's a word in season, isn't it? You can come and sit here and do church without meeting the living God and think, I stepped into the building today. That's pretty good. God's real. If we don't meet with him, but we think we've done something for him by sitting in the building, 
That won't do. That won't do. It's religion without relationship. And that's what God was worried about, and so he has an answer. It's pretty graphic. Uh, do you guys remember what's happening here? Anyone? Who's, that? Who's the statue of? Saddam Hussein. And uh, uh, he doesn't look like he's in good space at that point, is he? They're, they're pulling it down. They're smashing this statue. And this word, in the next passage we're about to read in, in uh, Psalm 51, uses this word broken. And very often it turns up in the rest of the Old Testament as breaking idols, smashing idols. And I want you to see how it's used in this psalm. Verse 16 says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. See, what God's looking for is not bodies in a building, but broken and contrite spirits is what he is looking for. He's looking for the people who get their need for God's mercy, get their need for God's mercy. And David couldn't be who he becomes without having God break his heart. He could never learn what he learns by being broken by sin if he just won every victory. And guys, I think that's really encouraging because it means your life experience isn't wasted. It can be redeemed. If God will break your heart but you'll turn to him, he can use it. He can use it. So I want to encourage you to embrace your brokenness, not because being broken is fun, but because being restored by God is life and hope. See, what happens typically is that when you're doing this trampling of the courts thing, you have to do it again and again and again and again and again. And it doesn't work because it's you doing it. There's a beautiful passage in Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament. And uh, it says this, just read you one verse. I could read you the whole chapter, but that wouldn't fit in today. In verse 14, it says this, By one sacrifice, Jesus has made forever perfect those who are being made holy. So Jesus offered one sacrifice and it did enough. It paid the price fully and totally. Once for all we were cleansed. Once for all we were washed. Once for all we get a chance to be right before God. And it's done at the cross. So what does this psalm teach us? I think it teaches us three things. It teaches us what we are saved from. We're saved from guilt, from sin, and ultimately from death. What are we saved by? By washing, blotting, and renewing from God. And we're saved for something, not just from something, but for something. Saved for joy. It should be a joy. We're saved for praise, and we're saved for proclamation, because if you get this message, you can't keep it to yourself. What that means is in the midst of this psalm is something you can't buy anywhere else hope. Hope for the brokenhearted. Hope for those whose sin is always before them. It's here. It's on offer. There's a purpose in our salvation and you can't keep this to yourself if you know where to find it. I want to finish by inviting you to dive into the forgiveness that God offers for us. Have a listen again. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. 
Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, many of us will know the weight of our sin. I pray that all of us might know the joy of feeling that weight gone. Father, help us to come to you and ask for your forgiveness. Thanks thanks so much, Father. It's not something we have to do, but something you have done through your son, Jesus. Cleanse us, wash us, renew us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there we go. That's our sermon. Next week, we'll continue in this series. Uh, So stay tuned. There's more to come. If you're uh, new with us here today, uh, we'd love to help you get connected with our church. There's uh, people running around with a green badge on, and they are wonderful people who'll be able to direct you how to get connected to our church. But I'd like everyone, if you can, to get out your Care and Connect cards uh, and if you're new with us, we'd love you to fill that in if you'd like to be connected. Um, if you put your email address on there, we won't send you a set of steak knives. We will send you our newsletter so that you can know more about what's happening in the life of our church. You might want to use this card to let us know something that's happening in your life you'd like us to pray for. Uh, we pray through these cards every week as a staff team, and we love doing that. If there are things coming up. Let us know what's happening for you, and we'll pray for you confidentially. Or alternatively, you might have some questions coming from today and you can write them on the card too. I'll give you a moment to fill those out, and then I'm going to invite uh, Michelle and Tim and the band up to uh, lead us in our final song. Sorry? Michelle and Tim are the band. That's right. All right. Great work, guys. You're doing excellently. Um, thanks, Tim and Michelle. Uh, at the end of the service, uh, we would love you to put the cards in the little letterbox at the back, pens, Bibles at the back, And if you could take any children you brought with you home, that'd be fantastic. Please sign them out so our kids, guys, when you're ready, Michelle, are you good? Can't see. No, that's good. I'll just keep talking and you'll be fine. We're going to finish with a song that speaks about the living hope that we have. It's made possible. David sees it, a little glimpse of it in Psalm 51. We know it in full in Jesus. We're going to stand and sing together, Living Hope.